You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. Welcome to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. I'm Nick Tony, your host. And today, uh, this is a real treat. I'm here in Peterborough in the land office of Garrett Smith with Garrett Smith's biographer, Norman K. Dan, uh, who goes by Norm. Um, and we are going to talk about the life of Garrett Smith. Um, Norm has written a book, I think it was published 2008, 2009, um, called Practical Dreamer, uh, Garrett Smith and the Crusade for Social Reform. Thank you, Norm, for joining me. My pleasure. So, Norm, um, since we're here in Peterborough, it's a beautiful September day, uh, early fall or late, late summer, um, I think we should start in Peterborough and how the Smith family ended up here. Um, Garrett was the son of Peter Smith, uh, who was a fur trader and a businessman who eventually ends up here in Peterborough. And... Um, uh, forms a business. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how we ended up here? Peter was born in 1768 downstate in Rockland County and w- living down there near New York City, which was about 12,000 population at that time. It was a big city for the time. He got interested in drama as a hobby and he became involved. There were two theaters in New York City at that time, that early. And he became involved in some acting on stage in those theaters. And during that process, he met another young man who was also interested in drama and acting on stage. And they became friends and actually remained friends and associates for the rest of their lives. And that guy was John Jacob Astor. And a little later on, Peter moved from the New York City area to what is now the Utica area because he was looking for some way to make a fortune. And in those days, this was right after the Revolutionary War, there were options open for young men or young people who were active enough and interested to become very rich quickly. And one of those was in the fur trade with the Native Americans, which was quite lucrative at that time. And another one was in land speculation. So he came up here intending to get involved in some combination of those businesses in order to make a fortune, which he eventually did. He started off in the fur trade with John Jacob Astor as a partner. And the way that happened was like this. Peter started in the Utica area with a series of small retail stores dealing with the Native Americans, trading them goods for furs. And Astor was also in the fur business early, apart from Peter, and wanted to have some sort of a middleman connection with the Native Americans upstate. And he knew Peter was up here. He knew Peter had already learned the Native American language and was liked by the Native Americans. So they got together and worked the fur trade for a short time. It was only about three years that they worked together in the fur trade. And as that began to diminish in upstate New York, which it did in the uh, late 1780s, they became involved in land speculation. And Peter uh, at first leased a large tract of land, was called the New Petersburg Tract, 
from the Oneida clan. And after New York State purchased that land illegally from the Native Americans, he bought it from New York State. The legalistics of all that take a long time to describe. But sure. Very briefly, before 1788, when the Constitution of the United States was not yet ratified, there were land sales going on between people, uh, Native Americans and others. After that, it became illegal for any state to write treaties with foreign nations. New York State did it in buying the land from the Native Americans. It was an illegal treaty. Over the years, what happened was the illegality of it got ignored. And it was sort of winked at and sort of like, this is okay because those, those people are only Native Americans and savages or whatever you want to call them, so they can be ignored. And they got ripped off. And uh, Peter eventually purchased back from New York State a good portion of the land that he originally had leased from the Native Americans and then began to sell it in uh, land deals and became very rich off it. And what kind of deal did he get from the state on the land? Did he, did he get uh, market value? Did he, did he get a deal? Yes, uh, yes he did. He did. Okay. Yeah, he mm-hmm. paid a few cents an acre right. for what he bought. Mm-hmm. And even then, that was, that was a pretty good deal. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a little later on, Astor became involved by asking Peter to join him in a land purchase of about 50,000 acres in the eastern part of New York State over around Schoharie area. And Peter did. So from then on, uh, through the early 1830s, Peter died in 1837. So until about 1832, he was involved with John Jacob Astor in land deals uh, beyond the original business of the fur trade. And that was a source of major wealth for Peter. He ended up in Peterborough, I think, because it was central to his New Petersburg land tract. And it allowed him ease of travel and access to the property that he owned. And he had to do a lot of surveying, some of which he did himself, uh, and uh, traveling around it to be able to describe each piece of land to a potential buyer. So he came here. Uh, The original arrival of the family from the Utica area was in January of 1807. Okay. And the the land office we're sitting in and the house, which was 70 feet to the east of the land office, were both built in 1806. Okay. And so so, uh, Garrett Smith, uh, who's born in 1797, moves here as a young boy. He was nine. He was nine. And he... He grows up working the farm, and you made sure to, to mention as we were walking into the land office, uh, working alongside slaves that his father owned, um, uh, cutting down lumber. Uh, I believe there were some glass factories in the area, or, uh, and there was a lot of lumber that needed to be uh, chopped down for, for fuel. Uh, so, so Garrett Smith, um, no stranger to labor, also no stranger to witnessing slave labor. Um, and uh, so... Uh, can you talk a little bit about Garrett Smith's childhood here and then what becomes or maybe always was n- not a great relationship with his father? Yeah, he uh, came here as a nine-year-old boy, and I like to picture him bounding around on the property here, playing with whatever he could, uh, watching the wildlife, playing with the youngsters that were part of the families of the slaves. 
And he learned early that people could be owned and abused. And not to say that his father Peter was a militantly abusive owner, he was not. But as one slave narrative that I have read stated, this person was uh, a runaway slave and was asked why he ran away. And he said, well, I was very well treated. And the questioner said, well, if you were really well treated, why did you run away? The answer is because I was a slave. It's a mental condition. Mm -hmm. And that is abuse enough. So he watched, Garrett watched at an early age this going on and uh, probably had a profound effect on his perception of how you should be treating human beings. And Peter never manumitted his slaves. He eventually sold them, still as slaves, to another party. Uh, Garrett, as he grew up here, did go to school here. There was a, a minimal school in Peterborough in 1808 and 9, and he attended that. Uh, some in-house education also uh, for him and uh, eventually attended college at Clinton at what is now Hamilton College, uh, starting in 1814, graduating in 1818. At the top of his small class, so yeah, he, he, was no, uh, he was no dummy, but he, he uh, you know, it's so interesting in the book because you have, you, you said earlier and you mentioned a lot in your book that some of the previous biographers cover Garrett Smith at the extremes. And um, while he was at the top of his class, he was, at least he didn't consider himself a scholar of any sorts. I mean, in fact, he, he sort of lamented the fact that he didn't get to spend a lot of time with uh, literature and, and books that didn't have to do with business. Um, so he graduates college and um, a couple tragedies hit him uh, within, within a year, which had a profound effect on him. Uh, he marries his college sweetheart, who I think dies a few months later. or Seven months later. Seven months later. Uh, and then uh, he, I believe his mother dies shortly after that, who he actually had a, a pretty good relationship with his mother. So, so uh, he's a bachelor. He comes back to, to Peterborough. And to, to add to all of the sadness, his father has sort of run this business uh, very poorly. And there is a huge amount of debt. And... It's now Garrett's task to sort of save the family business. Well, that happened as follows. When he got home from college, uh, it was August 26th, 1818, and on the following day, his mother died. Mm -hmm. That was unexpected. Uh, she died of cholera, which was common at the time, but people didn't know the cause of cholera until 1854. So in 1818, his mother dies, and this leaves him as the person who was going to have to accept the operation of the family business because Peter now, after the death of his wife, decides that he wants to get out of Peterborough and away from this aspect of his land business. So it should have gone in terms of the cultural norms of the day to the eldest son. Peter had four children. Uh, Garrett was the third. The first was a woman, Cornelia, and she couldn't be considered for the business anyway because women had no such status at that time. Uh, the eldest son was Peter, Peter Scannendoa Smith, named in honor of the Oneida chief. 
with whom uh, Peter was very friendly. And he, however, was an alcoholic, and his father refused to offer him the business. So that left Garrett, who did not want the business. He wanted to go on in college and become uh, an attorney for his life career. He never did because it appeared that he had to take over the family business if it was going to survive. So he did that, and uh, he did not like his father. His father was, as far as Garrett was concerned, a selfish, bigoted, uh, conservative person who had no interest in human rights. And Garrett was developing this particular attitude throughout college, and as he began his own business and philanthropy, he was very much interested in those things, and his father was not. So he didn't get along with Peter. He wrote clearly in some letters, especially to his mother, uh, how he did not like his father. So it was a very unfortunate thing. And uh, the curiosity of it at all, as you read through the book, you'll find that uh, he had the same kind of difficulty with his own sons, two of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get to that right now. I mean, he had uh, a son named Green, who um, uh, Garrett clearly loved and supported, but uh, when Green didn't want to get into the family business or took little interest in it, uh, I guess he was a hunting enthusiast. Um, uh, it was something that disappointed uh, Smith. Uh, the, the, other son, the other son's name was... Uh, Fitzhugh. Fitzhugh. And wh- what was his relationship with Fitzhugh? Well, Fitzhugh uh, died at age 12. Okay. Uh, that was in 1836. So he never really developed into a recognizable adult figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was also trying to groom Fitzhugh for the same kind of a position that he was trying to groom Green for later. That is, the male of the family is supposed mm-hmm. to take over the family business, be interested in the kinds of things that the father was interested in, like the Christian religion and good works toward other people. And these boys weren't. And it really disappointed him. When Fitzhugh died, it was a blow mentally to the whole family, uh, especially because he seemed to be coming along in intellectual ways in a way that might actually be interested in business, even at 12. But uh, Green, born in 1842, uh, As a young boy here at the estate in Peterborough, showed a great deal, very high interest in the outdoors, especially in birds. He became uh, infatuated with the behavior of birds and the different species and would spend hours watching them in the yard, even when he was three, four years old. Uh, And eventually, as Garrett tried to develop his interest in both religion and business, the boy showed neither interest Mm -hmm. and simply wanted to be outdoors doing his thing. And his father actually coerced him to make changes in his behavior, wrote a contract, which is what a businessman does. He wrote a contract with his son Green, which he made Green sign, indicating that he would stop hunting and fishing and spend more time learning things about religion and business. Well, this really angered Green and turned him off even more. And Green eventually uh, just avoided as much as he could his father's influence. 
So where his two sons lacked in interest in business acumen, uh, Smith clearly didn't. I mean, he, he, uh, he rescued the f his father's business when he came here uh, and became an overwhelming success. I mean, uh, I think everybody who knows Garrett Smith knew that he was wealthy and knew that he was a philanthropist, but he, we're talking one of the wealthiest men in America at the time. Correct. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what the business was and how, how he, he became so wealthy? It was a land purchase and sales business. That's why this is called the land office. Mm -hmm. He did not have an office in his home. His business office was here. And he spent in this office, uh, according to my own calculations, between 10 and 12 hours a day, six days a week for 55 years. He worked. He worked. People accused him, uh, have accused him of inheriting all of this land and money, and he didn't. He inherited... He inherited debt. Nothing from his father until his father died in 1837. Then he did inherit a great deal of land that was his father. Up until that time, this is between 1818 when he graduated from college in 1837, he inherited or was gifted from his father nothing. He purchased this business from his father for $225,000 in those days dollars and the inflation factor is around 70. If you multiply that out, you're talking millions. And he had uh, a time payment plan with his father, with whom he had to pay back all of that money, and he did over a, a decade and a half or so. He did uh, successfully purchase the entire business and then work it for himself. And you're right, he was probably one of the wealthiest men in the country at the time, and he didn't want money. Yeah. Very interesting point. He did not want money for himself, he would not let his family have the money for themselves. He said, the money here is somewhat of a divine gift. I consider it that way, and it's for me to do things for people who are less well-off than me, especially if they are in any way oppressed. Of course, the people that come to mind immediately are slaves mm -hmm. and women. Mm -hmm. The intensity of the discrimination against both categories of people was extremely high. And we still have legacies of that with us today. Well, of course. And so he gives a lot of it away. And he, one of the estimates in your book is throughout his lifetime, nearly $650 million he's given away uh, in, in, in current uh, terms. Um, He'd give away to uh, somebody lost a husband. He would give them some money to, 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 to help them deal with it. Um, can you talk about his, his philosophy? In, I mean, I, you've already touched on it, but his philosophy in, in, in giving money away, I mean, he, he, he felt that being this wealthy was a sin. I mean, this gets to the complication of Garrett Smith. I mean, he was so many things that he was good at but didn't want to be. I mean, he, he, he sort of was decent at delving into politics, but he, didn't really he really didn't like doing it. Um, he was good at being a businessman. He spent a lot of time in this very land office uh, uh, making deals that made him a lot of money, and he did not like doing it. He spent a lot of time in his library reading business books. You mentioned your biography. There is not one book in there about history, about uh, uh, travel books. I mean, um, 
you know, talk a little bit about his philanthropy and um, whether it was effective in forwarding causes or whether it was sort of just he saw somebody who was in need and, and he gave them money. And he did it in small amounts. He never made gigantic contributions to some corporation or business or enterprise that would carry his name. He didn't want that. He wasn't looking for accolades of praise for what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And he liked this important point. He liked to see quick, tangible yes. results of his philanthropy. So it was unlikely that he was going to donate, for instance, $100,000 to Ezra Cornell and Andrew White when they were starting Cornell University, even though they came here and knocked on his door asking for it. He told them essentially to go away, you'll get your money somewhere else, my money's gonna go to the guy over here in Clockville whose barn burned last week. So when he gave away money and he did it consistently, it was usually in small amounts to relatively insignificant people, oppressed people or simply people in need like uh, families that needed help for some reason with sickness or, or tragedy and it never made much news. Mm -hmm. And that pleased him very much. Mm -hmm. He would, mm -hmm. and, and we have people who come here and say, you know, I've been through college and high school and courses in American history, I never heard about this guy. That would make Garrett Smith very happy yes. that they had never heard about him, even though he was probably one of the most powerful individuals in 19th century life in this country because of his money and his philanthropy. And and so he um, it makes perfect sense. He he didn't have a, he didn't really like the press very much. He didn't he didn't like seeing his name in the newspaper in a negative or positive way. Um, he uh, but he is an activist, and and so he uses his money um, effectively in the sense that if somebody needs a house, he buys them a house or he he gives them land. But uh, in terms of causes. Um, he's like you said. He's not going to give up a lot of money to some cause that there isn't some immediate uh, uh, result, which makes perfect sense why he does not uh, like politics. Uh, and and he gets. We'll skip ahead a little bit, and then we'll, we'll come back. But um, he very very reluctantly takes a seat in Congress in, in the early 1850s. Um, he, he, he never advances his own candidacy. He's sort of uh, talked into it. And so uh, he wins. And by the way, with every vote in Peterborough except two, uh, he goes to Congress. And can you talk a little bit about his time in Congress and just how miserable he was there? Yeah, he did. He, uh, we should talk also maybe in a few minutes about mm -hmm. his earlier involvement in politics with the Liberty Party. But uh, he did get elected to Congress in the fall of 1852 as an independent. He was never a member of a political party. He had no obligations that way. So he was a, a free soul at Congress because he didn't have to worry about party loyalties or what other people thought of him in that way. And the Congress at the time was dominated by what was called the slave power in caps. And that simply meant that uh, the Avenues of influence and power were held by people who were slave owners, mm -hmm. or if not, they at least supported it. Presidents were slave owners. Many congressmen and senators were slave owners. The approval of slavery at the congressional and presidential level was consistent throughout those decades in the, in the early to mid-1800s. And here's Garrett Smith, the reformer, 
the uh, liberal from rural Peterborough going down to the stronghold of absolutist power for slaveholders who had no interest in human rights. And he is in the Congress making speeches. He made some brilliant speeches. There is a book in, on his speeches, all of his speeches printed out. The most brilliant one was on the Kansas-Nebraska bill. And he finds that in spite of his wisdom, people won't listen to him. His perspective on slavery and human rights in general is not of interest to the people in the Congress. So he eventually, after one year of a two-year term, decides to evacuate and move back to Peterborough. So he quit his congressional term and came back to Peterborough where he said, I can have much greater influence on the process of the abolition of slavery than I can in a place where nobody cares about it. And I sort of love this scene in your book. Uh, Garrett Smith liked to tell people about their behavior. I mean, of course, uh, we'll get into some of his other activism, but uh, he was part of the temperance movement. movement. He did not like the use of tobacco, and he didn't mind telling the people in Washington uh, about it. So uh, he did not make many friends in Washington. And you could picture this, you know, uh, Garrett Smith down there in a sea of uh, politicians who, who indulge in, in all kinds of uh, vices and uh, Garrett Smith not fitting in there. And then to boot, he's telling them about slavery and abolition. And he tried to be hospitable while he was there for that one year. His daughter went with him as a house manager mm -hmm. and uh, etiquette person for the household. And they had many dinners. He called them cold water dinners at his house because he wouldn't serve liquor. And uh, invited congressmen and senators, um, hundreds of them, to his house. And they came and they had dinner. So they knew him. And many of them respected him as a person, but not his ideas. So uh, let's rewind a little bit uh, and go back to the Liberty Party, which he is a founding member of, uh, had a lot of influence in. Tell us what it is and what, what Smith's role was. Well, in uh, late 1830s, actually in 1839, it was coming clear that uh, the process of moral suasion, which was the technique of pursuing abolition supported by Garrison in the camp in, in the Boston clique, it uh, was not working. It was essentially preaching, especially towards slave owners, that what they were doing was a sin and they should get out of it. And the original naive assumption was that once we point out to these people who are slave owners how sinful it is, they will realize that the, the error of their ways and uh, opt out of slavery. Well, of course, that's not going to happen. We can look back on it now from our perspective and say this is ultimate naivete, even believing something like that would happen. But they had no precedent, so they didn't realize that was the case. So by the late 1830s, they're fishing around for different tactics. We can't keep doing this moral suasion because nobody's listening and we're not getting anywhere. So what can we do? Four people got together in Garrett Smith's house here in Peterborough in 1839 to discuss the possibility of starting a third party for the abolition of slavery. And the reason a third party was necessary was because the two dominant parties were the Democrats and the Whigs, and both of those were pro-slavery. The Whigs may be a little less than mm -hmm. the Democrats, but nevertheless, Smith and the absolutist kind of radical abolitionists couldn't accept that. They would not identify with a party that was in any way pro-slavery. 
So the four people that got together were, of course, Garrett Smith, Myron Holly, Alvin Stewart, and James Gillespie Burney. The other names uh, are important in different ways later on in history, but uh, the, the important point here is these four guys, and it had to be men at the time because women were not allowed to speak in public or to vote. Mm. So mm -hmm. these four men met at this house here in Peterborough and discussed the possibility of developing a new party. They had some conventions in various places in central New York over the next few months. And by April of 1840, had actually formed the Liberty Party, they called it. It was Garrett's idea to call it the Liberty Party. So 1840, the first Liberty Party candidate is James Gillespie Burney. He's nominated again in 1844. Mm -hmm. This time, there is a little more interest in the Liberty Party and in abolition, and he gains 70,000 votes, something like that. I mean, it's a, it's a major indication that the message is getting out there. So the Liberty Party has got some groundwork done and is building support. Now, over the next few years, between the mid-1840s and the mid-1850s, anti-slavery factions begin to get together, they begin to coalesce. And there are factions within, of course, there's the Liberty Party, there's the Liberty League, which split off from the Liberty Party. There's the anti-slavery factions in both the Democrat and Whig parties that are interested in this idea. There's the newly formed Free Soil Party, starts in 1848. So all of these factions get together in 1854 and create another third party, another new party, which is, of course, the Republican Party. Now, the Republican Party nominates Fremont, Fremont yep. as, his first can as mm -hmm. their first candidate, mm -hmm. and he gets a few votes, not a lot. They try again in 1860, and they nominate another guy not many people have heard about. He's sort of a, an obscure backcountry woodsman named Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. And from there on, most people know the rest of that story. Right, right. So the important point for Smith and the history of human rights politics is that the initial meeting, which was designed to produce that abolition party took place in Peterborough, then spread through small conventions in central New York to several other places, drawing support and making um, networks and coalitions to develop support, which eventually worked to the point that uh, the candidate that eventually was nominated by these coalitions mm -hmm. in, in the mid-1850s mm -hmm. In nominated eighteen sixty, won the presidency. Yeah, so I mean, so there's the case to be made. I mean, the, the Liberty Party, uh, uh, largely uh, founded in Garrett Smith's uh, uh, hometown, is a precursor to the Republican Party. Exactly. And they, they, you know, Fremont's probably uh, still a little too extreme in in, in fifty six, but they seem to have found the the perfect candidate to win national office in 1860 in Abraham Lincoln. And that is an extremely interesting story to think that, you know, uh, the, you know we, we get that. It starts here in Peterborough. It did. And one thing that's important to uh, communicate these days is that in 1860, when Lincoln was elected, the Republican Party were the radical liberals, human rights party. Then uh, that has changed. The economic forces of the late 1800s, early 1900s shifted those, those perspectives and the Republican Party became the conservative non-human rights party 
and traded that position with the Democrat. Let's uh, let's go back to his relationship with John Brown, uh, who was here in Peterborough many times, uh, was, uh, I think you could say, a close friend, at least an associate of, of Garrett Smith. Um, Brown comes here, uh, and at first, I think there's some sort of land dealings. Uh, Garrett Smith gives him some land to, to, to work, and then Brown is also going to help Smith with a project where he wants free blacks to to own land and, and work land and become successful. So talk about that, and then we'll get into Harper's Ferry. All right. Brown first came to Peterborough in 1848. Uh, Garrett Smith had started the land giveaway deal to uh, free black males in the Adirondack area in order to enfranchise them in 1846. Brown had heard about this. But Brown had other interests also. He was an abolitionist himself by that time. He was interested in ending slavery and had no resources to do it. But he had a link to Peterborough, which was through his father. John Brown's father, Owen Brown, was a trustee at Oberlin College. And Oberlin College had been gifted by Garrett Smith in 1839 with a huge amount of land and money, a couple of thousand acres of land he gave them as a resource for their use in, in uh, interracial education, which was going on there, which Garrett Smith supported. So Owen Brown knew about this, knew therefore that there was a rich philanthropist slash abolitionist who lived in Peterborough, and his son John was looking for support, so he sent him out here. Mm. And Brown came into this room we're sitting in, in the land office, and talked to Garrett Smith for the first time in 1848. And he told him he had an idea that he wanted Smith to listen to for the abolition of slavery. Well, Smith had already been working for two decades for the abolition of slavery, and he hadn't gotten very far. Started out with moral suasion, that was a dead end. Mm -hmm. Got into politics, that was gonna work eventually for some aspects of abolition, mm -hmm. but it was slow, and by 1848 was, was in the doldrums, and Smith was frustrated. So here comes this guy knocking on the door named John Brown, and he says, I have an idea I want you to listen to. Well, of course, his idea involved violence. And Smith was, at that time, the vice president of the American Peace Society. He's a civil disobedience-oriented person who is not interested in violence, abhors it. So why is he listening to John Brown? Because he's tired. Yeah. He's a little bit burned out with this business of abolition who just hasn't gotten very far. And maybe this guy's idea could actually work. And Brown comes up with this notion and, and, and a very important concept here. Brown's notion was that we need to do something to destabilize the institution of slavery. He wasn't interested in starting an insurrection or any other kind of excessive violence. He wanted to do something to stir up an important location in the South so that Southerners would become so mad at Northerners, these rascals coming down here now on our property, that they would cause a war. They would shoot at them and cause a war. 
because Brown knew, as anyone would who had studied Northern and Southern culture at the time, that the South could never win a civil war. It was just too much difference in technology, population, communication, market availability. It was, it was a huge difference. So he recommends to Garrett Smith that he fund him, Garrett Smith fund John Brown, to go down into the South and create a little havoc to anger the Southerners to the point where they do something that will destabilize their own institution of slavery. Now, Garrett Smith doesn't want to know a lot about what John Brown is going to do. Mm -hmm. he's, he's timid. He's a little scared about what Brown might do with his money, and, and he have the chance of being indicted himself over it. So he says to Brown, I'll give you the money, and he gave him somewhere around $2,000 times 70 for his work in um, both Kansas and eventually Virginia, and uh, supported the notion that he could use violence. But according to Smith, who says, I didn't know it was going to be Harper's Ferry, and according to Brown, who said, I never told him it was going to be Harper's Ferry, Smith may actually not have known what the focus of the raid was going to be. But he did know he was going to raid something. Right, right. He, he knew that, uh, he knew what Brown was capable of. Uh, so, uh, so Harper's Ferry happens, and Brown, of course, is captured, and he's hanged uh, shortly thereafter. And I believe some documents are uh, are come to light that point fingers at Smith. Oh yes, uh, and uh, the uh, damning documents. And so, what happens then? I, I, Smith. This is hard to explain exactly. We know where he went, but what happened? What, what's your opinion on this? After the raid, it was clear that Garrett Smith was implicated with a hard paper trail directly to this office. Brown had on his person in his possession at the time uh, an uncashed check from Garrett Smith for about a hundred bucks, mm. um, which is a lot of money even in those days. And so it was clear that he was a co-conspirator in this process. What happened, I'll, I'm gonna give you the end of the story first, okay. and, then, and then explain how it happened. Mm -hmm. What happened was that uh, Garrett Smith lost contact with reality, had a brief psychotic episode, and went to the hospital for only one month. Now, how did that happen? This was, the raid was October 16th, 1859. Garrett Smith goes to the hospital on November 7th, 1859. This is three weeks after the raid. Before that, for the entire decade of the 1850s, what was Garrett Smith experiencing? What was his mental stability like throughout the decade, which ended up with this precipitating event of Harper's Ferry? Starting out early in the decade, his son Green, We've already talked about him being somewhat of a rebel mm -hmm. for the family. Was indeed a rebel. He was one who was interested in his early adulthood in drinking, swearing, gambling, no interest in business or religion, a real radical opposite of Garrett Smith, and it bothered him terribly. He writes a lot about it. He and his wife had uh, a lot of discussions about what to do about this son of ours that is going in the wrong direction. That's a major stress factor on his life. Also, in the 
mid-1850s, he and his wife Anne experienced what I call a midlife crisis. That's eh, sort of a mild way of putting they probably would have been divorced if it had been available to them, but it wasn't. Hmm. It was a taboo at the time. Mm -hmm. So they talked about the fact that they maybe never should have gotten married, that they were having troubles with each other, that they eventually got through it. That's the important point. They solved the problems by the end of the decade and stayed together in a loving relationship until they both died. But in the mid-1850s, this is another huge burden on his shoulders and of a mental form, working hard on him. He's also having experience with physical illness. He had a problem with his eyes in the 1850s that he worried about terribly. He, he traveled to have it worked on. He thought he was going blind. In the end, it turned out to be psychosomatic, probably a result of the stress he was facing. Mm. But that was another factor on his back. He was also dealing with typhoid fever. It almost killed him twice. And he was in the hospital for long periods of time over that. He had a chronic problem throughout the 1850s with hemorrhoids that were extremely painful. And at the time, nobody knew what to do about it. Hmm to correct the problem. And he had three operations in New York City and Philadelphia to try and correct hemorrhoid pain and problems. None of them worked. And he had long periods of time when he couldn't even walk or sit. And he would do his business, he would take his papers from his office to his house, lie on a couch on his side and work on the floor on his papers in order to continue his business. Um, also in the middle 1850s, the politics that he was working on so hard isn't working very well. No. His baby, the Liberty Party, has fallen apart mm -hmm. and is not indicating much success. All of these things. He, all the northern politicians up. around him are trying to find a way to, uh, to, to work with the South and avoid war, which you know seems to be coming and coming. And uh, so, so your take, Norm, is that this is... You know, uh, Harper's Ferry is the icing on the cake, but this is a culmination of right. uh, of, of loads of stress on Garrett Smith. All of these things are building up on his shoulders throughout the decade of the 1850s. Then John Brown does something that Garrett Smith is very embarrassed about, and he's in fear of being indicted, mm -hmm. and there are reporters banging on his door here in mm -hmm. Peterborough wanting to talk to him about this, his involvement in this raid. And he loses touch. He just, for a brief period of time, he loses touch with what's real. He has hallucinations and delusions. He's not trusting his wife or his staff or his children. And he won't eat. He can't sleep. I mean, these are all just classic symptoms of a breakdown. He mm -hmm. had a nervous breakdown, mm -hmm. which were what we would call it. It was a bipolar reaction. And uh, what do you do about it? Well, he wanted to go to... He was demanding that he be allowed to go to Charlestown, Virginia, which is where John Brown's trial was, to be tried with John Brown because he said, I am as equal as, equally as guilty as is John Brown in this. So his family said, okay, pack your bags. We will take you to the train so you can go to Charlestown and be mm. tried with John Brown. They did. They took him to the train and they took him to Utica as a ruse. Yes. 
And he, they took him to the mental hospital in Utica where fortunately Garrett Smith knew the lead doctor in charge of the mental hospital in Utica. His name was John P. Gray and he was what we these days would call a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it, that didn't exist, but this guy had a brilliant new, relatively new idea about what causes mental illness. It isn't demons in the brain right. that you have to treff in to get yep. out of. Mm -hmm. It's uh, stress. Yes. So it was a new idea. Now we think of it today, somebody says, you know what causes mental illness is stress. And you're, yeah, yeah, right, pass the ketchup. You know, <laughs> I mean, we, this is no news to us, mm -hmm. but it was then. Mm -hmm. So this guy, John P. Gray, devises a system of treatment for Garrett Smith that involves, number one, get him away from the stressful situation. That is, get him out of Peterborough. Right. Get him away from the people who have created the stress in his life. Don't let him read any newspapers or hear any news. Change his diet so that he has a different uh, chemical base and give him medications. And the two medications that were important at the time for treating mental illness were cannabis and alcohol. That sounds like fun. <laughs> so, you know, these are both mind-changing drugs. Right, sure. If you, if you mm -hmm. want a different perspective on something, try mm -hmm. those. Mm -hmm. And it, in moderation, of course. Of course. And it actually worked. Mm -hmm. So a month later, Garrett Smith is released from this mental hospital, and he goes to doc, Dr. John Gray's home for three weeks just for observation. Then he comes back to Peterborough, to this land office, and goes to work. Mm -hmm. And an important question, one of the aspects of Garrett Smith's reputation that people tend to know is that he had this bout with mental illness. And my question for anybody who is thinking about this is, do you know someone in your life, maybe yourself, maybe friends or relatives, who for whatever reason had a brief period in their time of time in their lives where they needed a little bit of psychological counseling for a problem, and after a few weeks they were okay and have been okay ever since. Eh, probably everybody in the room is gonna raise their hands. Sure. Mm -hmm. This is a common thing. Maybe it was the person themselves. And it, at the time it was considered unusual, but we know now that a brief period of counseling for a problem that results psychologically is not unusual. No, it's not. And Very common occurrence and uh, almost a normal occurrence in some ways. And Garrett Smith never had it happen before this time when he was 62 years old, mm -hmm. and it never happened again. Never happened after. And another quick note on uh, John Gray, the doctor who treated him, an interesting character who, ends, who, who goes on to be a, a witness for the prosecution in the trial of Charles, Charles Gateau, who uh, assassinated James Garfield. Uh, so I've looked in a, a little bit. Gray, sort of, at this point when he's treating uh, Garrett Smith, uh, he's sort of one of the liberal, up-and-coming, cutting-edge uh, uh, doctors treating mental illness. And by the time he's uh, working on the Gateau, uh, Gateau case, he's sort of part of the conservative uh, uh, medical, at least that's a take in one of the books I've read about him recently. So an interesting character there. So, so Garrett Smith gets over that. He, he, he's treated. He comes back. He's much better. He's not indicted. Um, and so, uh, and, and the war comes. Um, can you talk briefly about, uh, he, he, he spent some money raising troops. He, he, he offered money to locals here in Peterborough. Um, 
Uh, I, I think he wrote letters to Lincoln. He was a bit of an advisor. Uh, can you talk about his role during the war a little bit? Yeah, he supported the war. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he abhorred the notion that the slavery had to end by violence, but he knew it was going to happen. Right. As early as 1845, this is 16 years before the war, he was predicting that slavery would go out in blood, as he put it, uh, because he could see even that early that all of the peaceful tactics that were being used were pretty futile and that the culture of slavery that was ingrained in the South was so well uh, entrenched that it can't be rooted out by reason. It was going to have to be rooted out by violence. So in a reluctant fashion, he supported the war. Mm -hmm. And you're right, he did support the recruiting of troops. He, he paid their fees. Uh, his son became a Civil War soldier. And uh, Garrett wouldn't even allow his son to be paid by the government. And when he was, Garrett reimbursed the government for the pay that had been given to Green. Uh, and Green uh, was lucky to get out alive. That's a, a different story if you want to hear about that. But uh, he did support the war. Um, an interesting thing, though, is that he, he and most of the other abolitionists who did support the war, when it finally resulted in 1865 in a victory in the end of slavery, they were disgusted. And that surprises many people. They, you might think, well, gosh, they've worked for decades for the end of slavery. The war finally ended slavery. Why aren't they jumping for joy? Because the war ended slavery in a political fashion instead of a moral fashion. Mm -hmm. The South surrendered its sword, but not its values. What happened was that the rules of life in the United States changed by this way. You can no longer own slaves. That became an amendment to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. It's now illegal for you to own slaves. So the rules of life, the laws, have changed. But the score didn't change. The score of the game was still discriminatory, mm -hmm. brutally. And although slavery was ended, it didn't actually end. It just reformed itself into something else that got called Jim Crow or prisoner right. training. Or, and it's still going on today, as mm -hmm. Michelle Alexander shows in her book about... Uh, the penal code and jails and what we do. Right. And, and, and even immediately after the war, many of the slaves stay, stay on the same plantations they're on and, uh, you know, work for nothing or next to nothing. You know, nothing in that immediate aftermath for a lot of slaves has really changed. So, right. uh, or, or free blacks at that point. Um, now, Garrett Smith, um, somewhat surprisingly, in 1867, signs the bond for right. Jefferson Davis, which, right. you know, especially given what we just talked about there, uh, shocked is shocking. I mean, even you think you can think about it and think about it again and be shocked. So uh, Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, uh, and also uh, a senator from Mississippi before the war, calling for Garrett Smith's hanging uh, uh, after Harper's Ferry, is in lingering in jail for two years without trial. And Smith says, you know what? He deserves a trial. Uh, I'm going to sign the bond to get him out of jail. Can you talk a little bit about that and why he did that? Sure, sure. His attitude toward the South all the way, even before the war and throughout the war, was conciliatory. Mm -hmm. 
he always thought that you should look for the best qualities in people and emphasize that because this will make them good citizens and good citizens will be interested in human rights, part of his human philosophy for social life. And when the war, before the war and during the war, he said we should be conciliatory toward the South because the reasons why they support slavery are just as solid in their minds as the reasons that we don't. Mm -hmm. And you've got to understand that and try and work with them instead of against them. So when the war ends, one of the things he does uh, is immediately forgive the debts of a lot of his southern uh, uh, business relationships. He has people in the south that owe him money. He forgives the debts. So this is one way I can forgive the south and maybe reconcile with them quicker. On an individual level, but that's the way he thought. But what he, he really did that was uh, shocking, as you put it, uh, is he bailed out Jefferson Davis from prison. Davis had been in prison, as you say, for two years without charges and no trial. It's really a, a, a horrible breach of human rights for anybody, even war criminals. So he gets together, the bail is $100,000 in those days, dollars. Mm -hmm. So he gets together with some other people. Uh, Garrett Smith contributes 25000 Horace Greeley, another 25000 Vanderbilt, another 25000 And then a coalition of about seven other people contributed the last 25000 to bail Jefferson Davis out. He ends up going back to Mississippi and living a fairly comfortable life from then on. Uh, it is simply a symptom of his attitude toward people and issues that uh, the only rule that should govern all of our lives is the golden rule. Treat me the way mm -hmm. you want to be treated. So how, therefore, should we treat Jefferson Davis? That's how he did it. Right. And, and that, I mean, there's another episode in his life, uh, for, correct me if I'm wrong, where it just shows whether you're a slaveholder or uh, a slave. I mean... There are rights that you that you are entitled to. Didn't a, sl a slaveholder or or somebody seeking a slave come to Peterborough, which was a stop on the Underground Railroad, looking for the slave? And Garrett Smith says, "Well, I don't know," but then gives him dinner. I mean, offers him dinner. I mean, so this just goes to show you that that, that everybody was a man to to Garrett Smith, entitled to to, to certain uh, decencies. Exactly. His orientation toward humanity was that. Everyone is a person and mm -hmm. should be considered a person first. He would say with a fugitive slave in this room, he would say to other people, is this a person? Well, the obvious answer is yes, mm -hmm. this is a person. Mm -hmm. Well, then this person must be equal to all other persons because personhood comes first. And the labels come second because they're secondary labels such as this is a person who is male, a person who is old, a person who is female, a person mm -hmm. who is black, a person who was poor, a person who was sick. Again, the personhood is the priority, and once you see that, then you see the equality between all persons as being primary, and that's the way to treat them. So when a slaveholder comes to Peterborough, and they stood in this room, in this land office, screaming at Garrett Smith about his stealing of their property, after a fugitive had gone through here, and they didn't stay here long. They were mm -hmm. pretty transient, especially after 1850, the 
through mm-hmm. the slave belt. Mm-hmm. And he would say, yes, they were here. They're gone now. They're probably on a boat on the way to Canada from Oswego to Canada. And would you like to stay for dinner? Yes, he did. <laughs> he, he did that often. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason why he would do that is he wanted to have a chance to lecture them about slavery. Right. So I think that's the perfect segue into uh, another important uh, modern aspect of Peterborough is this is the home of the National Abolition Hall of Fame and Museum, which is, uh, which is the, right across the road from us. Uh, a, a beautiful spot to go. And uh, in a few weeks is the induction weekend. And I have all the information here, which I'll, which I'll read. Uh, and by the time that this podcast is up, um, you'll only have a few days to register. So uh, the, the induction weekend is October 20th. Uh, and I, uh, there uh, a few inductees going in. Samuel May, uh, the Reverend from Syracuse, is one of them. Um, go to the, the Facebook page of the National Abolition Hall of Fame and Museum, uh, and I think you have to register by October 5th. So, um, but you'll there's a ceremony, there's a speaker. Norm, I believe you'll be involved. Uh, uh, Dot, Dot will be involved. Um, Come up here. I mean, you know, it was a small town then. It's a small town now, um, and it's worth coming to see. Uh, if you get the wonderful opportunity of, of walking through the land office, I mean, again, I know Norm wrote part of his book in here. I mean, this is spectacular. You can feel it. In Norm's book, you can feel Peterborough. Um, you, can, you can see the rolling hills. Um, again, uh, Norm's book is called Practical Dreamer. Garrett Smith, and the Crusade for Social Reform. I really enjoyed this, Norman, and I thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, and uh, with that, we'll, we'll end the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.